Isn't it great to have Indiana Jones back? Is this the last crusade or will there be more? No, there will be more because I'll be on your next one, which I'm very excited about. We've missed you both um, tremendously at the school. So we're just thankful that you're back safely and to get all the sand out of your shorts from all the desert experience. Maybe never. Yeah, it's a little abrasive, isn't it? Oh, it's great to be here. I am privileged to be able to bring the word to you today. Um, I'm grateful to have my daughter with me and my girlfriend, Kendra. Uh, it's just a privilege to, to see so many faces that I know here as well. This week was kind of touch and go because there's been a lot of sickness going around in just about every school. And when you are in education, you pretty much pick up everything that comes along. So about two days ago, I hit the worst of this sinus chest congestion type of thing. And I really sounded more like, have you ever heard, remember the singer Barry White? Do we happen to have I've heard people say that I just want you to enjoy too much of anything is not good for you, baby. But I don't know about that. There's many times that we love and shared love and maybe. John Burns, I love you. You are I went between services and I said, Do you happen to have any Barry White? Do you have any iTunes up there? So I'm going to do my Barry White. Can I do that? Nothing to do with my sermon. All right. Let me see. I'm not as low as I was before, but I think I still got a little bit of the Barry, you know. Remember he used to do commercials for Arby's? I'm going to do a commercial. All right. Baby, you know, the way you look at me when we go through the drive-thru at Arby's. You order the big cheesy melt roast beef sandwich with horsey sauce and curly fries. I've heard people say that too much of a good thing isn't good for you, baby, but I don't know about that. Because the way I see it, a double stack bacon cheeseburger beats a single any day. <laughs> no, no, don't clap unless you mean it. <clears throat> no gratuitous clapping. <laughs> Again, that had nothing to do with my message, but I figured I'd try it out on you because I always like to get a temperature or feel for the audience that I'm speaking to. But knowing that you have Todd here, then this has got to be a, an audience that uh, can appreciate um, a sense of humor and balance. And um, so anyway, thank you for allowing me to share. Um, I'm going to share with you something that is very personal to me. It's about the one thing that has really changed my view of God and therefore my view of myself and my world and my relationships. I've been a career Christian and in the faith since I was five through the influence of my father. And if you've been in the faith long enough, you realize that after a while, Things don't impress you anymore. You lose somewhat of the mystery of being a child. You lose some of the innocence. You lose some of the wonder. When you hear things like, Jesus loves me, why does it just bounce off of us? It doesn't really mean much anymore. We have to be refreshed every so often. And I think as, as I've grown in the faith, as I've, as, I've, as I've gone through some valleys, I think one of the things that the Lord has impressed upon me is there's another side to him that I have not seen, that I have not been willing to look at or even have had the eyes to see. And I want to bring that to you today. I want to start by sharing a story that comes from Greek mythology, the story of Narcissus. Narcissus was an extremely good looking guy who loved himself. In fact, he cared only about himself. He was loved by a nymph named Echo who was cursed with silence because she had annoyed a goddess with her incessant talking. She could only repeat the words of others. So Echo followed Narcissus around, waiting for him to say something that she could repeat. 
for Narcissus was so absorbed in himself that he never noticed her. One day, as Narcissus bent down to take a drink of water out of a small pool, he saw his reflection in the water. He immediately fell in love with himself and sat there for hours. Finally, he said to his reflection, I love you. Echo, overjoyed, repeated, I love you. However, Narcissus failed to hear her. He couldn't comprehend anything or anyone but his beautiful reflection. So he sat there staring at himself until he died of hunger and thirst, still gazing upon his image. The question is, when you look at a reflection of yourself in the mirror, what do you see? Not just what do you see, but what do you hear? Narcissus couldn't hear the voice of the one who desperately wanted him to know that she loved him because he was preoccupied with his own image. And I propose today that the voice of the one who formed us, who created us even in our mother's womb, the one who formed us, thought of us, and whose thoughts towards us are always good, are always loving. His voice is obscured because we have become preoccupied or obsessed with a false image of our own beauty. It's not about surface beauty today. We use a lot of terms to describe surface beauty. It can be things like um, this person is attractive or this person is pretty or this person is likable. That is really more of a surface beauty. It's more of a veneer, but that's not what I'm going to be talking about today. Anything of surface beauty that we can discern with our physical eyes is merely a very dim reflection of a greater beauty. That all beauty is pointing us to the greater beauty or the greater majesty and glory of God. And the only reason that we can look upon beauty, that we can recognize it, that we can appreciate it, is because we have been created in the image of God. In fact, what I'm saying to you today, based on the word of God, is that we cannot live without beauty. We will die. We have to see it, and not just see it, but we have to enter into it. We long for it. I would even say that we pine away for it. On your program today, there's a psalm, Psalm 27.4, that is really kind of the cornerstone of, of my message today. David, don't know what part of his life, what season of his life he was in when he wrote this. But I thought, if there's a, a verse that has really meant a lot to me, that seems to be kind of the, one of the major building blocks in my understanding of God, it's this one. <clears throat> and David starts out and says, one thing. I ask of the Lord. If you can reduce your entire life down to one thing, what would it be? This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? So I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Who but David could could have been surrounded by the beauty that he did? He had many wives. He had all the glories of Israel. But he still longed for a beauty that far outstripped everything he'd ever seen or experienced. He longed for the one thing. And I believe that that's the the, the path that God is setting all of us on, even though we may not necessarily recognize it, is that we're looking for his beauty. My daughter, when she was no more than three, began asking me the question, am I pretty? Now, who told her to ask that question? What is her concept of beauty? What is her concept of being pretty. Is it narcissistic for her to ask me that question? Not at all. It's no more than it is for me to be asking that question of you. 
to reflect back to me. But more importantly, she was asking her father, am I beautiful? How important is that, ladies, that your father share with you, tell you that you are cherished, that you are loved, that you are wanted? And what damage does that do to a young woman's soul to know that you are not or to be communicated by actions or by abandonment that you are not? We all desire that. But there are not enough mirrors in the world for me to reflect back to my daughter, her beauty, without her looking deeply and intently in the face of her heavenly father. Because I am a poor reflection. I am a dim reflection. I am tarnished. I am warped. I do not give her the pure essence of who she is. I can only communicate to her what the heavenly father says about her. I can only be a conduit for that. I want her to move towards loving God and seeing his beauty. And as a result of him, his beauty, knowing that she was created as his daughter in his image and likeness. That's true beauty. We not only seek beauty, but we also like to be surrounded by it. Every one of our homes, even the place at work, if you have a workspace, we try to create beauty, do we not? We like to go to Home Depot. We like to pick out colors. We like to pick out textures, things to cover our walls, way to light our houses, way to create sound, things that go well beyond function. Homes are not just for keeping us warm and safe and dry. They are a sanctuary. They're something that we build around ourselves to feel as though we are in a place of comfort, a place that is welcoming, a place that is um, safe, a place that is calming. At least that's what we strive for anyway. So we have all these things that we put around us. I've always been fascinated how women uh, find dead flowers attractive. Guys, is this still an enigma to you? Sometimes, you know, we put our hand in the bowl. We think we're having some chips and salsa, and it's actually potpourri. We don't quite get it, do we, gentlemen? Um, Why we would hang dead flowers on the wall when it would be great for kindling or some other type of fire-producing element. Dead flowers are simply another way that women have of expressing beauty, of, of, of looking upon it, of cherishing it. We live in a culture that is obsessed with the pursuit of this, do we not? We are living in a culture that is trying to chase after a standard that is very, very elusive, and we are paying a very dear price for it. We will starve ourselves to attain whatever standard exists out there. We will risk elective surgeries. We will risk injecting ourselves with drugs and other um, enhancement type of, of drugs that will cause us to be different, to fit in and to measure up to whatever standard it is that's being constantly promoted through the visual media today. And we are paying a dear price for it. In fact, Narcissus in the story was a person who let his own reflection dictate his worth and it killed him. And if we continue to look upon ourselves as the measure of all things, which is basically the definition of humanism, if we are the measure of all things, then we will literally die a slow death. It won't necessarily be physical. It'll be one where we move further and further away from the creator, the one who placed us here and gave us dignity, worth and honor and purpose and designed us to reflect the greater glory, which is who he is. In fact, we see in Ezekiel chapter 28, the prophecy of Lucifer. Look at what happened to him standing in the very presence of God His number one. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. 
The great evil of Lucifer was taking his eyes off the glory and splendor of which he was looking upon every single day. And he was beginning to be obsessed with his own appearance. If you've been in the faith long enough, that is one of the dangers is that we, we, we experience the presence and reality of God. And we, we know of his beauty. We read of it. We see it all around us, but we get used to it. And then we begin to take our eyes off of him. We begin to place it on ourselves. And as a result of him being enamored with himself, God removed him from his presence. And today, if you're not aware of it, we are in a great war, spiritually speaking. We have wars going on throughout our world. There always have been. There always will be. But there is a greater war that takes place in the mind of every man and woman. It's going on right now in this room as the word of God is communicated and the enemy does not want anything to do with it because he's not he has no truth in him. There is a great war that's going on. We've got to be aware of what is happening. Romans chapter one, Paul echoes this same type of misdirection. He says, Paul says in Romans chapter one, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. What is the great sin of mankind? Every sin can be traced back to this. It is exchanging the glory, which I would like to also change to beauty or majesty of God for the glory of self. And self-worship in this context, in Romans chapter 1, if I had time to go into it, which I don't, he would go on to talk about how because we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, we have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, that self-worship translates eventually into some type of sexual perversion. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? As image bearers, if we reject the ultimate majesty and glory of God, we are still on a mission to find beauty somewhere because we can't live without it. We will redirect. We will find a way to find that object of ultimate beauty somewhere. And the alternatives are legion out there. And they're all tugging at us. That is the great deception, I believe, of pornography. Beauty was never meant simply to be passively admired. As Paul says, they exchanged the truth of God for an image in the form of, in, of corruptible man, an image. I was not built to just look at beauty. I was built to enter into beauty. I was built to commune, fellowship with beauty. Pornography appeals to us because it doesn't demand anything. It doesn't require any strength of my soul to move toward it. An image doesn't require repentance. It doesn't require gratitude. An image doesn't require any type of godly strength or leadership. It doesn't require brokenness or self-examination. The only requirement to look upon those images is a soul that is deeply empty, a soul that is in pain, a soul that is hollow and is locked up by fear. In fact, John Calvin in his institutes wrote, a hungry and empty heart is an idol-making factory, and we are churning it out. When a man sits in front of a two-dimensional image of a woman, I propose to you, based on the word of God, he must reject at that moment the incorruptible beauty of God and exchange it for another. The corruptible beauty of man, of woman, 
in this case. And ironically, the software that most of us use is called Windows. What's it opening a window to? We're looking through a window, aren't we? A window through which we can satisfy an unquenchable desire for beauty, which is ultimately the glory and the splendor of God himself. And how could I not speak without quoting C.S. Lewis? The man was gifted to be able to put things into words that I can only envy. (laughs) And here he said in, in his book, Weight of Glory, we do not merely want to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. This is the dichotomy with beauty. Every man remember if he's married his wedding day, he remembers what his bride looked like. But there is also another side to being enamored with her beauty. I've sat with enough grooms and have been one myself to know that along with the joy of seeing her beauty, there is another emotion that walks side by side with it. Gentlemen, do you know what I'm talking about? It's not a happy emotion. I'll just put it that way. There is, for lack of a better word, fear. There can be a lot of anxiety. Why? Why is there anxiety along with the beauty? Because a man in his soul knows that to become one, it will take moving toward her, not just admiring, moving, entering in, becoming one with her emotionally, spiritually, intellectually and physically. That is the great challenge. And it is a lifelong challenge. And we know it. That beauty was never meant to just stand back and look at. It's something that we must move toward. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant I would have been the guy who would have touched it. They obviously didn't get any three or four year olds around that thing. I would have wanted to lift the lid. There wasn't enough just to look at it. I would have taken a peek. (laughs) We just have to engage. We have to enter in. You know, I came across this quote, which was fascinating to me because one of the greatest minds of our time, Albert Einstein, he had a he said something that gave us a window into his mind regarding the almighty to know that what is impenetrable impenetrable to us really exists manifesting itself as the highest wisdom and the most radiant beauty which our dull facility or faculties can comprehend only in their primitive forms this knowledge this feeling is at the center of true religiousness now there are different people who say different things about his spiritual condition we don't know i don't know but look at what he says in his study of of the, of science and, and of the the atmosphere and of of the universe as he comes up with two things and he was not a theologian as far as i know he says to know that what is impenetrable i can't get past the ceiling here i can't reach god i can't know him sounds like he's an agnostic Manifesting itself as the highest wisdom and the most radiant beauty. Isn't it interesting that he not only recognizes that there is something there, but he also recognizes it as beautiful. He sees that there's, a, there's an inherent beauty in the Almighty and whatever is beyond him, whatever is beyond all of this, whatever is the beginning of all things. He knew instinctively that fits perfectly into Romans chapter 1. We all know that there is a God based on what has been made. 
His divine attributes has been clearly seen through what has been made, his eternal power. Einstein got it. Now, whether he transferred that into a name, into the person of Jesus Christ, we don't know. But he recognized it. We have the opportunity in ministry and in the church of Jesus Christ to say that God has penetrated history. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He came to live among us so that we might know who God is because he's the exact image of the father. So we have a God who has penetrated human history and he has also displayed his radiant beauty, his radiant glory. And those who have encountered it, those who seek after his, his beauty and his splendor have never been the same. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to start with verse 28. Luke chapter 9, verse 28, reading through verse 35. Luke chapter 9, verse 28 through 35. <clears throat> Luke 9, starting with verse 28. And some eight days after these sayings, it came about that Jesus took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And it came about as these were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, imagine God opens a window. He opens a portal, if you will, to the, the glorified state that Christ would be in, in glory. The glorified state that Moses and Elijah were in. And what does Peter do? He opens his mouth. Let's build a gift shop here. And I thought about that song by Billy Joel, the lyrics that says, Leave a tender moment alone. Stop talking. And the reason I think it's interesting that he talks about he's talking and the, and the father, God, the father says, this is my chosen beloved son, Peter. Listen to him because Jesus was talking, it says in the in the narrative to Moses and Elijah. <laughs> they were having a conversation. And who knows? Peter may have interrupted that conversation because I, I got uh, excuse me. I got a great idea. Gift shop right here. Let's build three tents. Let's put them up right here. Put a marker. Father says, listen to him. But, you know, God's lessons are very rarely wasted on us, even though at the moment we may be a little bit confused and may not get it. In Second Peter 1, 16, years later, Peter says this. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his what? His majesty. There was more than Jesus that was transfigured on that mountain. And Peter knew, 
later in his life when God said, you will be taken somewhere where you don't want to go and you will die for the sake of the message of the gospel for me. And Peter knew later that in order for him to accomplish such an incredible life and to die for his Lord, he needed a picture of his beauty. He needed to see him in all of his glory. Peter says, I get it. Because at the point where he saw the transfiguration, he wasn't, it, it wasn't, he was trying to contain the glory of God in a tent. But you can't blame the guy because he's Jewish and he had his forefathers built a tent in the desert to place, to contain the glory of God. But there was a dispensation that was coming along that would say, no, the God cannot be contained in, on top of a ark of the covenant. He will not be contained in the Holy of Holies. He will now be contained in the perishable body of a human being. The temple of the Holy Spirit will now be you and me. It's not about building tents anymore. It's not about containing his glory. It's about releasing it through the people that have trusted and believed that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. It's about Jesus penetrating the world, history, and pitching a tent next to mine, living with me. It's about communion. It's about entering into the beauty and the glory of God. Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai with God. Did, did you see any scribblings on the rocks like Moses was here? Anything like, okay. Moses didn't eat for 40 days. Have you ever gotten involved or engrossed in something that was so imp- enjoyable and so mesmerizing that you didn't eat? Something that was just so, I don't know, you just absorbed in it. I think Moses, it's kind of like when, when Jesus said to his disciples, I have meat to eat that you know not of. My meat is to do the will of my father. I think that's Moses' food. He got a chance to be in the presence of God and experience his glory and his beauty for 40 days. I'd be thinking, man, where is the McDonald's? But he had something else. He had something that you and I yearn for, we ache for, more than hunger, more than physical hunger. It's a spiritual desire to connect to commune, to fellowship with him. But it's interesting, he comes down from the mountain and he deals with some of the rebellion of the people. Can you imagine what the slap on the face that was? God wanted to wipe them out. He'd go down, you need to, to take care of some business. And he deals with that. But then he asks God something. As he, and again, they're at Sinai. They haven't started heading towards Canaan yet. And he asks God for this. Of all the things he could have asked for, he could have asked for physical endurance, he could have asked for a better tent he could have asked for cooler days he could have asked for whatever he asked god this he says in exodus 33 i pray thee show me thy glory that's what he asks for show me thy glory he wanted more and when you go up and and tap in to the image of the and the glory and the beauty and the splendor of god it it it, it, it the desire is awakened and it's something that requires more and more and more. I want to know more of you. I want to experience more of you. I want to drink deeply of your beauty and your majesty. Because all around me I see just the opposite. I see a world in chaos and confusion and anger and hatred and ugliness. He wanted to see his glory. After a second 40 days, he went up a second time to the mountain after this, the experience where God passed in front of him and said, talk to the hand kind of thing. He came back down from the mountain, the second 40 day experience, and his face glowed like neon. We can't imagine what that looked like. And the people were freaked out. They didn't know what to do with this. They were afraid of him. 
Well, Paul gives us a little bit more insight into this narrative when he says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The veil is off. In other words, we don't have to worry about once we have seen and experienced the glory of God, it's going to fade. In fact, what Paul says, that we now have the ability to move daily into a position where the glory that we've experienced with Christ and what we know of him and see of him and how we see ourselves in light of him grows. It gets brighter as we move from one level of glory to the next level of glory to the next level of glory. We don't have to wear a veil. The veil has come off. That's what that's what his prayer was for Israel, that they would see the glory of, of, of God in the face of Christ. The veil is no longer there. In other words, my relationship with God today, I hope, is better and stronger and more in depth. There's more communion with him than it was yesterday. We move. We, 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 we're transformed. That's, that's the beauty of the Christian life. We're not the same people that we were before. It's about change, is it not? Spiritual formation, that's a new word that we use today. It's always been around. Just transformation. We're changing. Francis Schaeffer used the description, a glorious ruin, to describe a man's condition living in this world. And he used the metaphor of an old, soiled painting. No one was certain who the artist was, but so much about the painting indicated that it was done by a genuine master, someone with incredible gifts. The painting was taken to an expert who lifted the stains and gently cleaned the canvas and examined the distinctive brush strokes analyzed the style and discovered the time period which it might have been painted in and after careful scrutiny he declared to who the artist was beyond doubt even though the work was now in ruins i think that's an amazing picture of who we are today as christians we are a glorious ruin but we have a master who created the original and he is restoring it gently over time he's removing the things that have corrupted us He's, he's given us the power to overcome those things that before were not available to us by giving us his spirit, placing the law within us. As we live in this world, our original image, our original look, our reflection as image bearers becomes dull, it becomes weathered, it becomes tarnished over time, concealed by layers of doubt and layers of fear, layers of discouragement, suffering, pain. And so often... I don't know about you, if you just read the paper, keep up with current events, it it leaves an ache in our heart when we see that the world is tearing itself apart. The world is chasing after something that is elusive. And like Einstein, it's like I want to know that which I feel is impenetrable. And I believe if I pierce through that, whatever that is, I will see something glorious and majestic and it will give me it will, it will make everything clear. It will help me to understand why I am here. It will fill me with a, a, a desire to want more, and to pursue it with all of my heart, with all of my soul. If the Bible can be reduced to what the Bible is about in, a very, in one sentence, I believe it's this. The Bible is the amazing story of what the master artist has done and what he is doing to restore his work to its full glory. And that's the good news, by the way. We're not the same people that we were before. That God is working in our lives. 
But unfortunately, as Christians, we've been nibbling at this sense of who he is. We haven't been pursuing his beauty and his glory with the passion and the abandonment that I believe he's really called us into, because that's what he designed us for. Like a radio that was that's designed to receive a frequency until we tune it into that frequency. We, it's there, but we just haven't gotten it. And God wants us to get it. John Piper wrote, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of glory, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. No, it is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things. There is no room for the great. God did not create you for this. The one thing that I have been learning and God continues to impress upon me, it's almost like I want this to be the first thought of my day. The same prayer that Moses prayed. Lord, show me your glory. Help me to understand that there is a spiritual dimension to this life that is not something I can necessarily see with my physical eyes. I can only see a dim reflection of it with my eyes. But it points me to someone whose beauty is beyond belief, that gives me understanding to why there is a hope and why there's something to look forward to, to see him face to face, knowing that once I do, I will never be the same. The Apostle Thomas, who was one of the few that would speak up and say, how do I know you're Jesus? How do I know it's you? He was honest enough in his soul to say, show me the Father and it will be enough. That's my prayer for myself. It's my prayer for all of you. Show me the Father. Show me the Father. David said this one thing I seek. I want to see him. In his beauty and his majesty. He is around. He's everywhere. But it has to be a pursuit. The beauty was meant to be entered into. Not just admired at a distance. Not just say, I think he's there, but he's silent. No. He is there. And he wants to commune with us. And it will be so if we ask. Let's pray together. Father, I ask for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that you lift the veil from my eyes. You expand my vision because there's only one vision, Lord, that will be sufficient for my heart, which is insatiably desiring to know you, to see you in all of your beauty, to see you as you are, to see your glory and your majesty and your splendor. Continue to gently remove the buildup that has come into my life, the corruption my soul has been feeding on for so long so that the image of your glory may be revealed the beautiful painting the beautiful work that's beneath and by doing so my life will be transformed from one level of glory to the next until it's perfect when I see you face to face in your kingdom someday I ask this in the name of Jesus the most powerful and majestic name there is Amen Thank you. You're dismissed.